When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast. In 1883, Harvey Wilcox and his wife, Daida, moved to Los Angeles from Topeka, Kansas. There he purchased 150 acres of land and tried his hand at ranching. Only his efforts didn't go well. Just four years later, Wilcox filed plans with the Los Angeles County Recorder's Office to subdivide the land. Pretty soon, a number of upscale homes were being built throughout the area. By the turn of the century, the area had a post office, several shops, a hotel, a livery, and even a streetcar. You'll hear differing stories about how this neighborhood came to be named. Some versions claim that the Wilcoxes learned of a town in Ohio with this particular name, and they decided to name their ranch after it. Whereas other stories claim that banker and real estate mogul H.J. Whitley came up with the name while honeymooning in the area in 1886. In either case, the name Hollywood stuck and has been around ever since. The first film ever completed in Hollywood was 1908's The Count of Monte Cristo, although production of that film actually began in Chicago. The first film that was entirely shot in Hollywood was a short film made two years later called In Old California. In 1911, the first movie studio was established on Sunset Boulevard. By 1915, several more major motion picture studios began relocating from the East Coast to the warmer locale. Back in 1922, Alvarado Court became one of the most famous addresses in Los Angeles. These eight white stucco bungalows were situated only eight minutes away from Hollywood and were home to some of the most important people in the still young Tinseltown. A well-known actor named Douglas McLean and his wife Faith lived in Bungalow 406. Actress Edna Purviance, who starred in a number of films with Charlie Chaplin, resided in Bungalow 402. Agnes Ayers, who once appeared as Rudolph Valentino's love interest in his hit film The Sheik, lived in one of the other units, as did Paramount director Charles Maine. A particular note, though, was the resident of Bungalow 404. This was William Desmond Taylor, president of the Motion Picture Directors Association and one of the top people at Paramount Studios. It was unseasonably chilly on the evening of February 1st. There was a misguided notion among the many people who migrated to California that the temperate climate meant there was no need for central heating. But it turned out that even sunny California could turn nippy at night. At around 8 o'clock that evening, Douglas McLean went upstairs to fetch an electric heater so that he and his wife could stay warm while playing dominoes. Faith was downstairs in the living room, 
when a loud bang shattered the quiet darkness. Christina Jewett, the McLean's maid, was in the dining room cleaning up after dinner when she heard the loud noise, which she immediately identified as a gunshot. Jewett had been on edge all evening because earlier she thought she had heard someone prowling around along the walkway between the McLean's bungalow and William Desmond Taylor's. She would later tell police she was certain she'd heard the distinctive crunch of footsteps on gravel. Faith McLean, on the other hand, didn't think the sound was a gunshot. She assumed it was just a car backfiring. Alvarado Court was situated on a steep hill and often motor vehicles had difficulty climbing the slope, causing them to backfire. Nonetheless, she decided to peek out her window to see what made the noise. She was surprised to see a stranger standing on William Taylor's porch. He had his back toward her, and the front door to Taylor's bungalow stood open. The light from inside illuminated the figure. The stranger soon realized he was being watched. He turned and saw Faith McLean staring at him through the window. He didn't appear startled by her at all. She later described him as being around 5 foot 9 inches and weighing about 170 pounds. The man was dressed in dark clothing, with either a muffler or his coat collar turned up. He wore a checkered cap that appeared to be made of some sort of grayish plaid fabric. She later described him as looking like her idea of a movie burglar. Faith McLean later insisted that despite the darkness, she could still see the man smiling at her. Then he turned back towards the door, as if he were saying goodbye to his host. The stranger then pulled the door shut and turned and walked down the steps of the bungalow. He turned a corner along a path and from there vanished into the night. At the time, it all seemed so innocent that McLean didn't even bother mentioning the encounter to her husband until the following morning. Police would later find six cigarette butts in the alley behind Taylor's bungalow, almost as if someone had been standing back there waiting for something. At around 8.15 p.m., William Desmond Taylor's chauffeur, Howard Fellows, parked Taylor's custom-built McFarland touring car in the Alvarado Court garage. Afterwards, Fellows went to Taylor's front door and rang the doorbell, planning on giving the man the keys. He was surprised when Taylor didn't answer, especially since the lights were still on inside. The chauffeur went home and telephoned Taylor, but he received no answer. At 11.45 p.m., Edna Pervians returned home from a party. She, too, noticed that the lights were still on in Taylor's apartment. She thought for a minute about ringing his bell and checking on him, but decided against it. After that, Alvarado Court went silent, as everyone settled in for the night. Although a few hours later, the place would erupt into chaos. That's because the following morning, Henry Peavy, William Desmond Taylor's valet and cook, would show up to fix his employer's breakfast, only to find Taylor lying shot to death near his writing desk. It's a story that contains all the elements of a Hollywood thriller. Sex, drugs, secret identities, blackmail, and of course, murder. The murder of director William Desmond Taylor has come to be known as the very first whodunit in Hollywood history. I'm Nate Hale, and Mr. DeMille, I'm ready for my close-up. And this is The Conspirators. At 7.30 a.m., Henry Peavy showed up at Taylor's bungalow to prepare breakfast for him. 
Taylor suffered from stomach problems and he'd asked Peavy to pick him up some milk of magnesia from the druggist. When Peavy arrived with the medicine, he noticed that downstairs lights were still on, despite this being a bright, sunny morning. He picked up the newspaper from Taylor's front porch and let himself in. There, he found the 49-year-old film director lying on his back near his writing desk. The man's legs were underneath a chair and his arms were down by his sides. He was wearing the same outfit he had been dressed in for dinner the night before. There was a tiny crust of blood near his mouth. Peavy's heart beat quickly as he softly called out Taylor's name. But then, when Taylor didn't answer, Peavy began to repeat himself, growing louder and louder until he was soon shouting for help. Pretty soon a crowd gathered as more and more people rushed over to see why Peavy was screaming at the top of his lungs. Henry Fellows, Taylor's chauffeur, arrived a few minutes after Peavy to drive his boss to work. He was just as shocked as Peavy, but he managed to collect his wits enough to phone his brother Harry, an assistant director at Paramount. Harry then called Charles Ayton, Paramount's general manager. Ayton knew this would reflect badly on the studio if anything illegal was found on the premises. This was during the Prohibition era, when alcohol was illegal in the United States. So he ordered Fellows to round up a couple of close friends of Taylor's to go around the apartment and hide any bootleg booze before the police showed up. There were also some reports stating that the men were ordered to plant a pink nightgown in the scene in order to cover for rumors that Taylor was a closeted homosexual. When you research a story, you will find a lot of varying accounts as to just what the police encountered when they finally arrived on the scene. Some versions claim Fellows and his cohorts were scooping up bootleg liquor bottles. Others say the police showed up and found one of them, possibly actress Mabel Normand, burning some letters in the fireplace. Back then, the Hollywood film studios were in constant fear of any whiff of scandal and were desperate to protect their image at all costs. By the time police were on the scene, the bungalow had become crowded with people. Detectives ordered nearly everyone out except for E.C. Jesserin, Alvarado Court's owner, Douglas McLean, and Charles Maine. At one point, a man poked his head in and said he was a doctor. He asked if he could examine the body. Detectives let the man in and he quickly pronounced Taylor dead of a stomach hemorrhage. This made sense to Taylor's friends because they all knew he suffered from chronic stomach ailments. It wasn't until after the coroner arrived and the body was moved that they noticed the blood stain on the carpet underneath the body. The coroner lifted up Taylor's jacket and saw a gunshot wound on the left side of the man's back. Because the bullet entered his back at an upward angle, this led the coroner to suggest perhaps that whoever shot Taylor had been embracing him in the moment before the gun went off. Picture someone reaching around for a hug, then secretly taking out a gun and firing the fatal slug at a low angle with one hand, while they were embracing. Robbery was quickly ruled out as a motive. At the time of his death, Taylor was wearing a two-carat diamond ring on his finger. His pockets contained a wallet with $78 in cash, which was about $1,300 in today's money. He also had on him a silver cigarette case, an expensive pocket watch, and a locket bearing a photograph of actress Mabel Normand, with whom he'd had a personal relationship. Normand was also the last person known to have seen Taylor alive, but more about that later. The press had a field day with the story once news broke of the director's murder. William Desmond Taylor was raked over the coals in the papers as being an alcoholic, a dope fiend, and a seducer of both men and women. The truth was a lot more complicated than that, but the truth wasn't going to sell papers. The American public gobbled up the story as it was fed to them. Each day brought new rumors and new motives for murder. 
To this day, the slaying of William Desmond Taylor remains one of the most sensational unsolved murders in Hollywood history. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The man who came to be known as William Desmond Taylor was born William Cunningham Dean Tanner on April 26, 1872. He came from a wealthy family in County Waterford, Ireland. His early life was marked by constant arguments with his strong-willed father, many of which centered around William's desire to become an actor. When William turned 18, he ran away and joined a theater company in Manchester, England. He soon began playing a minor role in a play under the stage name of Cunningham Dean. William's father was so upset with his son's actions that he packed him up and sent him to live in Ruddymead, Kansas, a colony in the United States where the sons of affluent English families sometimes sent wayward children to become gentlemen farmers. This didn't last, though. William didn't take well to a farming lifestyle. The only thing he liked about it were the horses. His riding ability would later do him well in Hollywood. In 1891, Runnymede ran into financial trouble. William took off after that and worked a number of odd jobs over the following years, including a laborer, railroad hand, and magazine salesman. People who encountered him during this time described him as the consummate gentleman, friendly, well-educated, and charming. In 1895, at age 23, William made his way to New York, where he joined a theater troupe and began appearing on stage once again. In 1898, that troupe dissolved. Three years later, William married a young socialite named Effie Hamilton, whom Broadway magazine described as New York's prettiest chorus girl. Effie's family put up the money to start William in the antique business. In 1902, the couple had a daughter they named Ethel Daisy. For a time, the theater business faded into the background. William and his family settled into the fashionable Larchmont district. But things weren't all well and good for William. Throughout his life, he suffered a number of health problems, including facial neuralgia, that brought with it bouts of excruciating pain. To cope with this pain, William began drinking heavily. In September 1908, William went on a three-day bender and abandoned his family. He withdrew $600 from the antique store. Then he put 500 of it in an envelope for Effie and pocketed the rest before leaving New York and his family behind. We don't know exactly when or why William began going by the name William Desmond Taylor, but it occurred sometime over the next four years as William drifted around the country. He still drank a lot but managed to bring it under some level of control. He worked briefly in a paper mill before heading for the Yukon and Alaska toward the tail end of the gold rush. During his time on the road, Taylor never completely gave up his dreams of the stage. He worked acting jobs in Hawaii, then San Francisco, and by 1912 he found his way to Hollywood. He started out performing on screen at Inchfield Studios, where he appeared in no fewer than 15 silent movies over a two-year span. In 1914, Taylor had his biggest break starring in an adventure film called Captain Alvarez, where he played a Yankee who joins a band of South American revolutionaries in order to win the affection of the woman he loves. Four years later, Taylor's former wife Effie took in a showing of Captain Alvarez, 
and was shocked when she and her then 16-year-old daughter Ethel Daisy realized the film starred their long-lost husband and father. It was the first time they had seen or heard from him in years. The fact that Taylor had another name and abandoned his family was something that was not widely known in Hollywood, and has led to speculation that it might have provided a motive for what led to his murder by opening him up to blackmail. Effie, who had long since divorced Taylor in absentia, would eventually make contact with him and the two remained cordial. Taylor even accepted his daughter Ethel as his rightful heir. Although he still attempted to keep his former life and family a secret to those who knew him in Hollywood, that's because the film studios were under constant scrutiny by the government because of their scandalous reputation. Meanwhile, Taylor's star was on the rise in Hollywood. He never became a full-blown movie star because of his acting, but his acting did lead to him finding his true calling behind the camera in the director's chair. In 1914, Taylor directed his first feature film, The Judge's Wife. Not only did this mark the beginning of his directing career, it was also the start of a romantic relationship he had with the film's star, Neva Gerber. Over time, Gerber separated from her husband and became engaged to Taylor, but the engagement dragged on as Gerber's husband stubbornly refused to go through with the divorce. Meanwhile, the strain of making movies took a major toll on William Desmond Taylor. Gerber worried greatly about him every time Taylor finished a movie. She later said that after Taylor finished directing a film, his whole body seemed racked, as if in physical torture. But to Taylor's colleagues, the struggle was worth it. He became greatly admired by many in the film industry. He gained a reputation as the consummate professional. The New York Telegraph noted that Taylor works easily, patiently, and earnestly and never loses his temper or balls out any of his subordinates. By 1916, Taylor was under contract to Paramount Studios and had a reputation that ranked him as one of the top directors in the industry. He made a dozen films over two years. Then in 1918, he did his duty as a British citizen by serving in World War I as a private in his nation's army. He was first posted in Canada before rising in the ranks to sergeant. Then eventually, he was sent back to England where they made him an officer. Taylor was considered an exemplary commanding officer and his men loved him for it. Taylor returned to Hollywood in May 1919, after which he broke off his relationship with Neva Gerber. The breakup was amicable though and the couple remained good friends after that. One major hurdle the police faced early on in their investigation was that they were being stonewalled in their efforts by the powerful Hollywood film studios that desperately wanted to avoid scandal at any cost. Even in the early 1900s, drugs were prevalent in the Hollywood community. Pretty much as soon as the movie industry kicked off, marijuana, heroin, and cocaine dealers rushed to Southern California, seeing a lucrative market with the wealthy Hollywood elites. Every Hollywood studio had its own security department whose primary job was to minimize bad publicity. Even so, plenty of shocking scandals occurred throughout the 1920s. In September 1920, an actress named Olive Thomas died of an overdose of mercury bichloride, a medication often prescribed to treat syphilis. In 1921, the popular comedic actor Fatty Arbuckle was arrested for the sexual assault and subsequent death of a young actress named Virginia Rapp. Arbuckle was acquitted in court three times on all charges stemming from the woman's death. But the scandal managed to rock the movie industry and the studios were on high alert by the time Taylor's murder occurred. In the wake of the Arbuckle scandal, a massive public outcry occurred, demanding that action be taken to clean up Hollywood. 
No less than 25 state legislatures began considering just as many censorship bills, most of which were thought would ruin the film industry. Then Montana Senator Henry L. Myers, a powerful member of the Presbyterian Church, kicked things up a notch when he drafted federal legislation imposing costly regulations on Hollywood that could bring film productions to a grinding halt and potentially bankrupt the studios. As a result, the movie studios were forced to react. They offered up a compromise in which they volunteered to vigorously regulate themselves. The studio heads then formed the Motion Pictures Producers and Distributors of America to oversee the industry and repair its image. A man named Will Hayes was put in charge. He was the former Postmaster General under President Warren Harding, and he had a sterling reputation. Hayes used his own political clout to quietly kill the Myers Bill. He then worked to placate Hollywood's critics by doing things like making sure all Hollywood contracts included a morals clause that gave the studio the right to fire anyone involved in a scandal. 117 people lost their jobs when their messy personal lives became public. As for Fatty Arbuckle, despite being acquitted of all charges, Hayes thought the scandal surrounding the man was still too great. So he banned Arbuckle from ever appearing in movies again. During this time, it is known that William Desmond Taylor championed reform of Hollywood, and he strongly advocated trying to get the drugs out of Tinseltown. There are those who suggest his efforts may have been what ultimately led to his murder. Back then, it was difficult for most people to imagine anyone holding a grudge against him. Most people who knew Taylor spoke highly of the man's kindness and generosity. He often lavished gifts on his friends and was even known to help out people he barely knew. He once cabled $5,000 to a young director who was stranded in Hawaii. On another occasion, he started a collection for an extra who lost her purse at the studio. It's all the more difficult then to reconcile the people who knew and loved William Taylor with those angry enough at him to want him dead. But there are two women in particular, though, who most historians point to as being directly involved in Taylor's murder. One of Taylor's first films after returning from the war was Anne of Green Gables. The film starred a pretty blonde, blue-eyed 17-year-old girl named Mary Miles Minter. Paramount was hoping to groom her to become America's new sweetheart after Mary Pickford, the current Hollywood superstar, was lured away by another studio. Minter's mother, Charlotte Shelby, was the quintessential stage mother. She's often been described as being greedy and vindictive the sort of person who would stop at nothing to advance her daughter's career. Trouble began between Taylor, Minter, and Shelby almost as soon as filming of Anne of Green Gables started. During their time working together, Mary Minter developed a mad crush on the much older William Taylor. Although it appears those feelings remained unreciprocated, Taylor insisted on keeping his relationship with the girl on a fatherly basis. Although initially Shelby was happy about the attention Taylor showered on her daughter, and his attempts to make her a star, those feelings soon turned to jealousy and rage. It's difficult to say how much of it was Charlotte being a protective mother and how much of it was jealousy because she had developed her own romantic feelings toward Taylor. There was also a financial component to Shelby's outrage against Taylor too. Keep in mind that in order for Shelby to keep collecting her 30% manager's fee, she had to keep Mary firmly under her control. This meant there could be no men in her life since marriage might bring to an end her lucrative financial arrangement she had with her daughter. During filming of Anne of Green Gables, it's known that Shelby got into several loud arguments with Taylor. 
During one shouting match with Taylor on the Paramount lot, she was heard yelling at him that if I ever catch you hanging around Mary again, I'll blow your goddamn brains out. A former personal secretary of Shelby's later told police that one night when Mary was out late, Shelby went to Taylor's bungalow with a 38 caliber revolver hidden in her coat sleeve. The secretary told investigators that Shelby told her that if she found her daughter there, she was going to kill her. Shelby had plenty of cause for concern about Mary. It turns out that Mary had a thing for older men. When she was 15, she had an affair with a 35-year-old actor named James Kirkwood. Some sources even claim that Mary became pregnant by the man. Then in the summer of 1920, Minter came home late one night and was confronted by her mother, who was in a rage, accusing her of sleeping with Taylor. When the young woman denied the accusations, Shelby threw a glass of water in the girl's face. Mary ran upstairs shouting that she was going to end it all. She locked herself in her room. Soon after, three gunshots rang out. The family chauffeur busted open the door and found Mary Minter inside holding a still-smoking 38 caliber revolver. She had fired three slugs into the floor and ceiling. All this drama proved too much for Taylor who tried to distance himself from Minter. He attempted to avoid her as much as he could, but when he would pass her on the studio lot, he refused to speak to her. Minter remained undeterred. She continued writing him love letters and telling friends how madly in love the two of them were. After Taylor's murder became headline news, several reporters began alleging that there was a sexual relationship between the 49-year-old Taylor and the 19-year-old actress that started when she was 17. Several close friends who knew Taylor came to his defense saying there was no physical relationship between them and that Taylor thought he was too old for the girl. Later on, copies of some of Minter's love letters that were found among Taylor's belongings were printed in the newspapers. One of those letters read, Dearest, I love you, I love you, I love you. This was followed by a string of small X's signifying kisses, followed by one giant X in the middle of the page. The letters tarnished Mary Minter's wholesome image and helped sink her career. She made six more films with Paramount Pictures that were all flops. Eventually, the studio declined to renew her contract. After that, Minter gave up her acting career, and in 1957, she married a Danish-American businessman. But Mary Minter and her mother Charlotte Shelby weren't the only suspects in William Desmond Taylor's murder. It wasn't even his only scandalous relationship. At the time of his death, Taylor had been dating an actress named Mabel Normand, who had been a frequent co-star in a number of films with Charlie Chaplin, as well as the now-scandal-ridden Fatty Arbuckle. Norman's previous relationship had been with producer and director Max Sennett. But when Norman caught the man in bed with another actress named Mae Bush, the two women got into a savage fight. Bush struck Norman on the head with a heavy object. It took Norman three weeks to recover from the concussion, but the betrayal by Sennett caused her to sink into depression. She became addicted to drugs, with cocaine becoming her drug of choice. William Taylor was the person who persuaded Norman to enter rehab. Throughout the relationship, he worked tirelessly to help her break free of addiction, although she was known to relapse several times. Taylor became obsessed with trying to clean up Hollywood's drug problem. It's said that he once physically assaulted a drug dealer he caught hanging around Norman's house. He actively tried to stop the dealers who appeared in the studio a lot. He even secretly met with U.S. Attorney Thomas Green to appeal for a crackdown on drugs in Tinseltown. Some stories claim that Taylor offered to testify against Norman's cocaine suppliers. Author Robert Giroux believes that those suppliers learned of the meeting and hired a contract killer to assassinate the director. 
According to Giroux, Norman suspected her involvement in the drug trade may have been the cause of her lover's murder, although she didn't know the identity of the shooter. On the night of the murder, Norman claimed to have left Taylor's bungalow in a good mood around 7.45 p.m. The couple blew kisses to each other as she got into her limousine. Norman was reportedly the last person known to have seen Taylor alive. Although the LAPD subjected her to a grueling interrogation, they ultimately ruled her out as a suspect. Based on the time the neighbors reported hearing the gunshot, this would mean that whoever shot Taylor must have waited for Norman to leave and shot the man just minutes later. Of all the suspects in Taylor's murder, there is one in particular who is known to have done harm to the director prior to his death on February 1st, 1922. Edward Sands began working for Taylor sometime around late 1919 or early 1920 as the director's secretary, butler, and cook. Back in 1911, Sands had been in and out of the United States Navy for the better part of a decade. He was court-martialed for embezzlement and had spent a year in the brig after receiving a bad conduct discharge. He somehow managed to re-enlist, although he later deserted. Then he re-enlisted again, only to desert once more in April 1919. Six weeks later, he joined the Army. He then deserted his Army post in October after passing a bad check. During all that time, the man learned to cook. He managed to get a job working in the Paramount Commissary and from there began working for William Desmond Taylor. During the summer of 1921, while Taylor was in Europe convalescing from stomach surgery, the director offered his bungalow at Alvarado Court to British playwright Edward Knobloch. Taylor gave Sands a signed blank check with instructions to use it for whatever Knobloch needed. Instead, Sands wrote the check out for $5,000 and cashed it himself. He also forged Taylor's signature on several smaller checks and robbed him of nearly his entire wardrobe. In addition, he also stole and wrecked the man's car. When Taylor found out how Sands betrayed him, he was furious. He swore out a felony warrant against Sands, but the police didn't catch him. In December, Taylor returned home to find the back door of his bungalow smashed open and the apartment ransacked. This time, some jewelry and a supply of specially made gold-tipped cigarettes were stolen. By now, Taylor had replaced Sands with his new valet, Henry Peavy. It was Peavy who, a week after the break-in, found a single gold-tipped cigarette on the front doorstep and showed it to Taylor. On Christmas Eve, Taylor received a mysterious package that many people think was sent by Sands. Inside were two pawn shop tickets in the name of William Dean Tanner, Taylor's original name. This was accompanied by a coyly written handwritten note apologizing for the inconvenience. The note was signed Jimmy V, which is believed to be a reference to a movie character named Jimmy Valentine, a thief who eluded police. No matter who sent the package following the murder, Edward Sands was never seen or heard from again. There were few people as devastated by William Taylor's murder as Henry Peavy. At the inquest that occurred on February 4th, Peavy sat in the front row weeping loudly. It was a terrible time for the valet. On February 2nd, the day he discovered Taylor's body, Peavy was supposed to appear in court on charges of social vagrancy and with being lewd and dissolute. All of which was the coy way the law had of saying back then that Peavy was homosexual. This is also part of what has led to some of the speculation in the press that Taylor himself was gay. He was the one who paid for Peavy's bail and was helping pay for his defense. Some reports say that Taylor was never intimate with Mabel Norman, Mary Minter, or any other woman in Hollywood, because he secretly preferred men. But like so many other aspects of this case, these were still just unsubstantiated rumors perpetuated in the press. Few people believe that meek and mild-mannered Peavy could be the murderer. 
Although one person who did come to the conclusion that PV was guilty was the New York Daily News columnist, Florabelle Moire. She took some rather extreme and pretty racist steps to trick PV into a confession. Moyer knew from the movies that black people were deathly afraid of ghosts. So, with the help of two Confederates named Frank Carson and Al Weinshank, Moyer offered to pay PV $10 if he would show her Taylor's grave in Hollywood Park Cemetery. Weinshank was hiding out in the cemetery wearing a white sheet and planning on jumping out and pretending to be Taylor's ghost. Moyer and Carson drove PV to the cemetery. This was a remarkably stupid plan for a number of reasons. One, no sensible person would ever mistake the old white sheet over the head for a real ghost. And two, Weinshank, who had grown up in a tough section of Chicago, had a distinctly American accent. When he jumped up and began declaring himself to be the ghost of William Desmond Taylor, Peavy burst out laughing. Then he cursed at him loudly. Unfortunately, among other things, the three cohorts seemed unaware that Taylor spoke with a distinct British accent. Probably the most likely suspect in Taylor's murder has to be Charlotte Shelby, though. The woman was wildly unpopular in Hollywood circles. Ill-tempered, greedy, manipulative, and fiercely protective of the income stream provided by her daughter. By the time Mary Miles Minter was in her late teens, she endorsed every paycheck over to her mother, who then deposited the money in her personal account. This amounted to millions of dollars even in 1920s money. Yet, Minter told friends that she had to beg her mother to borrow $10 for walking around cash. Any potential suitor presented a challenge to Charlotte Shelby's cash flow. She reportedly stepped in to squash several budding romances between Minter and a number of older men. Now, we can certainly argue that this was just Shelby being protective of her daughter's virtue. But it's difficult to ignore the financial incentive Shelby had to keep her daughter from becoming romantically involved with anyone. A couple of the other men Mary Minter had been linked to were James Kirkwood and Marshall Nealon. On the night before Taylor was killed, several guests at a party noticed Taylor was talking to Kirkwood and Nealon. No one overheard the conversation, but Taylor appeared visibly upset. One woman at the party later speculated that Kirkwood and Nealon might have been warning Taylor to beware Charlotte Shelby. Despite the strong financial motive Charlotte Shelby had to murder William Desmond Taylor, most of the evidence against her remains circumstantial. Despite this, many investigators still consider her to be the prime suspect. Some historians who have studied the case have suggested there may have been a cover-up going on as well. Thomas Lee Woolwine was the district attorney at the time of the murder. He was a friend of Charlotte Shelby's, and some have suggested he may have had a romantic relationship with her. Woolwine never even asked for Charlotte's statement. Woolwine even went so far as to assign one of his men to live with her aging mother as a sort of bodyguard. After Woolwine died in 1925, his successor, Asa Keyes, took charge of the case and began digging further into Charlotte Shelby's story. Keyes actually did call her in for questioning. Shelby told Keyes that she had an alibi for her whereabouts in the night of the murder. She said that at the time she was home playing cards with her friend, actor Carl Stockdale, as well as Jim Smith, the bodyguard provided by Woolwine for her mother. Shelby told Keyes that she didn't even learn about Taylor's murder until the following morning. Ed King, a former investigator and district attorney Woolwine's office, wrote an article in True Detective magazine in 1930, in which he claimed that immediately after the slaying, he and his partner collected three long blonde hairs from under the collar of Taylor's jacket. These hairs were analyzed and proven to be from Mary Miles Minter. The hairs were given to the property clerk along with some letters, a handkerchief, and a silky pink nightgown that some people claimed bore the monogram 
MMM, Mary Miles Minter. We'll never know for certain about any of that evidence, though, because not long after, all those items were ordered to be transferred to District Attorney Woolwine's office and were never seen again. In 1932, Shelby brought a lawsuit against her broker, Leslie Henry, for allegedly stealing $450,000 she had earmarked to pay her taxes. Henry contended that Shelby had ordered him to manipulate her accounts to cover payoffs to both DA's Woolwine and Keys, along with various members of the press and Carl Stockdale, who provided her main alibi. Henry stated that Stockdale had been receiving payments of $200 a month since 1922. He even submitted flowcharts showing surges in financial transactions, which he claims occurred after each of the district attorneys received their own payoffs. Now, we really don't know whether Henry's accusations were true or not. Henry eventually pleaded guilty to 10 counts of forgery and grand theft. District Attorney Fitz never followed up on Henry's accusations after that because he thought the convicted felon would be laughed out of court. But these weren't the only people accusing Charlotte Shelby of murder. One of Charlotte's most prominent and most vocal accusers was her own daughter, Margaret Shelby Fillmore, Mary's sister. Originally, Charlotte had tried grooming Margaret to become the star in the family. But when it became apparent the girl had little talent or interest in acting, she then focused all her attention on young Mary. In 1937, Margaret filed a lawsuit against Charlotte in an attempt to collect nearly $50,000 that she said her mother owed her. During the legal proceedings, a safety deposit box the two women shared was opened up and examined. Inside were found several canceled checks written to Carl Stockdale, along with some of the love letters written by James Kirkwood to Mary that were later confiscated by her mother. While all this was going on, Margaret began telling anyone who would listen that she fully believed her mother murdered Bill Taylor. The problem is, Margaret wasn't able to produce any solid evidence to back this up aside from her outright hatred of the woman. Shelby did admit under questioning that she once owned a 38 caliber revolver, the same caliber pistol used to murder William Desmond Taylor. But she claimed she disposed of the gun after the incident in which her daughter Mary fired three shots into the floor and ceiling. Charlotte Shelby, of course, denied all the accusations her daughter Margaret lobbed at her. Margaret hated Charlotte, and it appears the feelings were mutual. In 1936, Charlotte had Margaret committed to a mental hospital for her heavy drinking. Margaret spent two months there. She died of alcoholism three years later. In order to fix her damaged reputation, Charlotte demanded a grand jury investigation into Taylor's murder, although Charlotte didn't get exactly the results she wanted either. The inquiry ended with Charlotte being neither indicted nor completely absolved. A string of witnesses were brought before the grand jury, including Mary Miles Minter, and although there was no smoking gun piece of evidence that completely proved Charlotte's guilt, Several more damning stories came to light, including one where Charlotte Whitney, Shelby's former secretary, detailed the many threats her former employer made against Taylor. She claimed she received a phone call from Mary Miles Minter on the day of the murder, in which Mary told her she was planning on eloping with Taylor. Supposedly, this enraged Charlotte so much that she locked Mary in a bedroom at her grandmother's house in order to keep her from running away. Of course, any marriage to Taylor was highly improbable, but that didn't mean Mary didn't believe it. Mary Minter often fantasized about marrying William Desmond Taylor. Mary's sister Margaret added to the story, claiming that on the morning of the murder, Charlotte showed up at the house where Mary was being confined. When Minter opened her bedroom door, Charlotte reportedly told her, Your lover is dead and I'm glad of it. I'm glad the son of a bitch is out of the way. Charlotte's former chauffeur, Chauncey Eaton, did add one interesting tidbit of evidence to the mix. 
Shortly after the murder, Eaton said Charlotte handed him the 38 caliber pistol she owned and asked him to get rid of the bullets, because she was afraid Mary would hurt herself with it. Eaton testified that he broke open the revolver and removed the bullets. He then said he hid the shells behind a wood beam in the basement of Shelby's mansion. Eaton led investigators to where he said the bullets were hidden, and it turns out after 15 years, they were still there. It was determined they were of the exact same size and weight as the bullet removed from Charles Desmond Taylor's body. But this still wasn't enough to directly connect Charlotte to the murder. Although the police had the bullets, they still didn't have the actual pistol. If investigators were able to recover the gun, then they may have been able to make a ballistics match with the rifling on the barrel to the bullet that killed Taylor. But Margaret claimed her mother tossed the pistol into a bayou near her old home in Louisiana, and it was never found. With no new evidence being produced, District Attorney Fitz closed the investigation in 1938. To many people, despite having an alibi for the night of the murder, Charlotte Shelby remains the top suspect. Even if Charlotte's alibi is true and she really did spend the evening playing cards with Carl Stockdale, she certainly had plenty of money to hire a contract killer to do the deed for her. Remember, on the night of the murder, Faith McLean claimed to have seen a man standing outside Taylor's door. Although some people have suggested that this could have been Charlotte disguised as a man. Considering that Faith McLean saw this person at a distance in the dark, it's certainly possible she could have mistaken Charlotte for a male. Faith also remarked that she thought that the way the person was dressed made them look like a movie burglar. There is one final suspect we should examine in William Desmond Taylor's murder. This is someone who doesn't seem to have been on the police's radar back in 1922 at all. And that's actress Margaret Gibson. She was a star of the silent film era who appeared in 147 films between 1913 and 1929. She also sometimes worked under at least seven other names, including Patricia Palmer, Ella Margaret Lewis, and Pat Lewis. Throughout her film career, Gibson had numerous brushes with the law. In 1917, she was arrested for vagrancy under circumstances that included accusations of dope dealing. Then on November 2, 1923, nearly two years after Taylor's murder, Gibson was arrested on federal felony charges involving an alleged nationwide blackmail and extortion ring. Although the charges were later dropped, rumors continued to swirl that one of the victims of this blackmail plot was Taylor. But no evidence of this has ever been produced. In 1964, a then 70-year-old Gibson was living in a sparsely furnished home in the Hollywood Hills near Beechwood Village. One night, she was allegedly watching TV with a neighbor when a program came on about the murder of William Desmond Taylor. According to the neighbor, Gibson became hysterical and had to be calmed down. Then, on October 21, 1964, Gibson suffered a heart attack. Sensing she was dying, Gibson asked for a priest so that she could give a confession, but a priest wasn't available. So Gibson then confessed to her neighbors that she was the one who had murdered the Hollywood film director, William Desmond Taylor. The problem with this story is there's no way to corroborate it. It's true that Gibson was in Los Angeles at the time Taylor was murdered, but her name was never mentioned during the investigation and no documentation remains that it refers to her being involved in any way. By 1940, all the official police files and physical evidence in the murder investigation disappeared, leaving Gibson's deathbed confession as just one more tantalizing clue in the unsolved murder of William Desmond Taylor. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have some new Patreon supporters to thank. Thank you to Ryan and Monica for signing up and helping support the show. I couldn't do this without you. 
Just a reminder, the patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts, and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. If you can't get enough of this podcast, right now there's a large collection of mini-stories just waiting for you over on Patreon. If you're interested in becoming a patron of the show, I'll put a link in the show notes. Elsewhere, I wanted to remind you that another place you can get more of the show is to check out some of the short-form videos I've been making over on Instagram, TikTok, and YouTube. I'll put links to those places in the show notes as well. Another great way you can help support the show is to subscribe and give us a five-star review wherever you get your podcasts. Currently, we're on Apple, Spotify, and pretty much everywhere else throughout the podcasting multiverse. Besides that, we have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our back catalog of shows. You can also follow us along on Twitter, which I still refuse to call X, and our Facebook page. You can even send us an old-fashioned email at theconspiratorspodcast at gmail.com and let us know how we're doing, or even send us requests for future shows. I love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll be back next time. If you like this podcast, can we recommend another one? It's called Big Picture Science. You can hear it wherever you get your podcasts, and its name tells part of the story. The big picture questions and the most interesting research in science. Seth and I are the hosts. Seth is a scientist. I am Molly, and I'm a science journalist. And we talk to people smarter than us, and we have fun along the way. The show is called Big Picture Science, and as Seth said, you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts.